I think the issue has been in this space that there have been lots of shortcuts that don't really work. And because they have worked for some time, people don't really look deeper. But ultimately, if you think about really what sustainability is, it's about being able to survive over the long time, right? And so it's about consistency. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mental. I really hope you're enjoying this series so far. Before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank our wonderful sponsors, Chipper Cash. We had the pleasure of having Chipper's founder, Ham Serenjoji, on the podcast last series to find out all about their amazing journey from startup to double unicorn. So if you haven't heard it, I definitely encourage you to check out the interview via a link in the show notes. Chippercash are an African cross-border payments company trusted by over 4 million users and is widely considered as one of the most valuable African fintechs. The company's been on an amazing journey and the team is hiring for some exciting roles. So if you'd like to be part of the mission to unlock global opportunities and bring Africa together one transaction at a time, head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. On to today's episode, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking to Wing Chan, the co-founder and CEO of Sourceful, an index ventures-backed all-in-one platform for sustainable sourcing. They bring together all the tools, data, and products companies need to make their supply chains more sustainable. It's an awesome mission that I loved hearing about in this episode. Wing himself has had a really impressive career. Before co-founding Sourceful, he became CMO of the Hut Group, aged 25 years old, and CTO by the time he was 28. He was once described to me by a VC as one of the most investable leaders, and after working with him over the past year, I quickly saw why. Wing is not only a brilliant tech entrepreneur with fascinating experience, but he's also hugely passionate about people and developing careers. So in this episode, we dive into an array of topics, from his unique experience of quickly climbing through the ranks to become an executive, his brilliant advice on nurturing emerging talent, and his insights into what makes great leaders. So whether you're interested in learning more about sustainability, are a manager looking for tips on how to effectively develop junior talent, or you're just looking for some mentorship, I'm sure you'll get tons of inspiration and insights from this episode. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with a brilliant Wing Chan. Wing, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. How are you today? Yeah, really good. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to see you. Well, um, I've had the pleasure of working with you over the last year, so I've been really excited to to get you on the podcast. And I think we should let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So we're going to start, as we always do, with a quick fire round of questions. So if you don't mind finishing these sentences for me, that would be amazing. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. When I was younger, I always wanted to be... A baker. Oh, that's a good one. Any reason why? There's something magical about this uh, device that you put something in that you can't eat, and at the end of it, something comes out that's uh, it's warm. It's it could be sweet. It's definitely uh, very tasty. And Love I always that. thought to myself, okay, that is a great job to make people happy by putting something into a machine. And, uh, that's such a good answer. Yeah, and I I do I do love baked goods. So there we go. My first job was helping my dad on the weekend. So my dad was a one man. IT department. And uh, on weekends, that's when you would do an upgrade. So we would 
drive to um, uh, the office, one of the offices that he was helping out, and we'd swap out machines, switch cables, just do everything. And I was about 12 or 13, didn't really feel like a job, didn't really get paid or anything, just got some food. But that was my first experience of uh, what it takes to, you know, to work. And, and it, was, it was just that journey of uh, doing stuff with my dad. That was my first uh, work experience. Brilliant. I love that. Very good early grounding in, uh, in hard work. And, and I guess, uh, you know, probably sowed the seeds of a future career to come. My biggest achievement in my career to date is... Yeah, probably being brave enough to start a business. You know, I um, never thought of myself as entrepreneurial. So after eight years of working, having that opportunity to to take a leap and, and start something with, with Sourceful, I think that's a, that was the biggest step for me so far in the career. Brilliant. And we will talk a lot more about Sourceful as the conversation develops. I wish I could be better at... Definitely learning. I still wish I could learn faster. There's so much stuff I'd rather be better at. I think practically... Probably uh, everyone would benefit if I was better at cooking, though. <laughs> you so didn't pick up I only those have, only have a couple of no. I've only got a couple of skills uh, in the kitchen: fried rice and uh, spaghetti bolognese. Okay. So it's not really enough to to manage uh, for too long. Yeah. <laughs> classics, classics. And last two, my biggest vice is probably Marvel movies, sucker for a hero story. And as you know, cinema was very challenged over the last couple of years. Those those big events have been things that a lot of people have enjoyed. Same, same for me too. Totally. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV that could be a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned a lot from? Sure. There's an episode in my, before I even started my career really, uh, in table tennis. So when I was younger, I played table tennis for England as a junior. And when I was 13 or 14, I rose really heavily in the ranking from outside the top 50 to number two. Uh, in England. And uh, I was on the way to making it to the Euros. And uh, it happened very quickly. And at the very last stage before the selection of the Euros, we had a national championships for you know a bunch of young kids uh, from around the, the UK all fighting it out. And I actually lost in the quarterfinals. And as a, as a result of that, I didn't make it. And so even though I was ranked oh, second, I didn't sake. make it into the top four. And so out of that journey, I realized that, you know, one, you can grow really, really quickly and you can have really fast progress, but it's only consistent excellence that actually makes it. And even though I was ranked second, I wasn't really good enough to be classed as second because uh, I was only there for a couple of months. And so, yeah, that was a great learning opportunity. And it sort of made me realize that no matter how fast you get there, it's about can you continue and, and can you be good for a long time? It was a hard lesson to learn at 14, though. It was brutal, very difficult yeah, very to, to not make it and then and watch the other people would go and do really well. But it happens and you learn from it. I can imagine how gutting that must be. No, that's, I love that question because it's just incredible the, the different types of answers we get. And um, yeah, I think those sorts of experiences leave a lasting impression. And, and it can go both ways, can't it? You can get very bitter about it or you can learn from it. Thank you for sharing. Um, well, We've already talked about some early technology work experience you had, but after completing your computer science degree at Cambridge, you joined the Hut Group and you quickly rose through the ranks to become part of the senior team, CMO at 25. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that's been a CMO, CMO at 25. And then you became platform CTO at 28 years old. So can you tell our listeners a bit about how you climbed through the ranks so quickly at the Hut Group and what were some of the main challenges you faced being such a young member of a senior leadership team? Yes, I think, first of all, had loads of support. So the Hut Group team was was also pretty young. 
management team were uh, largely in their 30s. So it was still a very young team. So even though I was in my early 20s, you still felt like people were relatable and um, they were around. I think the, the second thing to say is every time I got promoted, it was still a massive bet. You know, when I was at the time, I was thinking, yeah, I deserve this. I'm working really hard. But when I look back on it, it's like, how did they know that I, I could possibly get to that stage and be able to do that? And the answer was, they probably didn't know. And so, but you have to make these bets on, on young people and emerging talent and sometimes trust that you know, it will work itself out. So I think the key thing is there were loads of challenges because I didn't know a lot of the things that I needed to know at the start. And so you only learn that by, by trying to kind of learn from everyone around you and be willing to embrace those difficult experiences. And so you do a lot of firsts when, you, when you're young. And I guess that journey of just having the bravery to go through that uh, and not giving up when things are, things are hard. Yeah, I mean, I think the bravery point is a really good one because a lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome and it holds us back when it comes to seizing opportunities. And you clearly kind of not only like really delivered on, on your roles, but you took the opportunities that came your way. And, you know, I clearly have been very successful off the back of that. You were part of a team that has seen incredible success. You know, it's a, a real success story in the UK. What did you take from that? working with those leaders and, and the, the rocket ship journey you went on now that you're a founder, what were the biggest kind of takeaways from that experience? It's really hard to hire amazing people in general, right? And, and you know this as, a, as a helping the best <laughs> yeah. brands to do that. It's really hard to find amazing people and it's even harder to, to make them fit in or be part of the culture that you've already built. And that gets harder and harder as the business grows. And so the best thing that you can do is to invest time into the people that you have and to invest time into the people that can develop into your leaders. And so that was the biggest lesson that, that I took and not trying to hide or get caught up in the, the big picture and not get stuck thinking about some 100-year vision, but actually what are you doing on your day-to-day -day is spending time with your team, giving them feedback, being vulnerable, learning from them, helping them learn. That time is much better spent investing in your people than having to go out to market later because you haven't invested in your team. And so that was the you know, single biggest thing that I think about every single day. It's, it's such a great learning. And you know, taking that mentality into startup is just, you can really see the difference when founders put people first and you know, come at building a startup from that angle and don't get too carried away with all the other sexy bits of startup life. Like at the end of the day, people is everything. I'm a bit biased on that, but I think it's true. And I think, you know, linked to what you just said, you know, you've managed over 500 people uh, over the course of your career. You've built numerous high-performing teams. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that evolved over the years? Yes, I think two things that go hand in hand. One is learning to lead by example. And then the second one is that you have to take the time to understand people deeply. And so leading by example is something that I think I had drilled into me by my parents. You know, both my parents, they were incredibly diligent. You know, they worked, they were helpful. They were there for people any time of the day, any day of the week. So if you wanted someone to be kinder, you know, you would go and lead by example. If you wanted someone to work harder, you would model that. Lead by example was just something that I had sort of seen throughout my whole life from them. But the second thing I needed to realize, and that's something that I struggled with when I was earlier in my career, was you got to take time to understand people deeply because the way that they tick is different, right? And so their experiences model and shape how they think about things. And if you don't understand 
why they have those beliefs and, and what drives them, then even if you lead by example, you might still find that they don't follow you. So I think leading by example is such an important thing to do because it's about being authentic to what you're trying to say. And it's also about the bravery that you have to exhibit. But ultimately, some people will still not follow you because they have other things going on that mean that they have a different attitude to things. And so you have to be able to say, especially as you grow and lead large teams, there is an aspect of we're going in this direction. So this is the way that we have to go. But also taking the time to understand that people have completely different threads in their journey. And as much as they're part of your journey, you're also part of their journey. And what's going on in their family life and in their own narrative arcs are different. And I, I think when I was very young, it was more about, okay, let me set some metrics. Let me set some ground rules. If I give you this number, if you hit it, you're great. If you don't hit it, you're not great. And what I realized was actually the biggest problem wasn't that people didn't want to hit it. It was that they had something else going on that they were distracted by that meant that they had a different priority. So I just, yeah, I think the leadership style was really how to understand people deeply and connect to people, especially ones that came from a different background to you. That's so interesting. And you can really, in, in being that way, I think the, you also instill a lot of trust you know, from your team and a lot of loyalty. And I think you mentioned earlier the vulnerability piece is something that I've, I guess I've worked on a lot. Before it was the kind of stiff upper lip and kind of crack on and don't show too much emotion with my team because I thought there always needed to be that distinction. But actually, I found by opening up much more you know, the team feel they can as well. You've got this real passion and skill for developing talent, particularly in the earlier parts of your career. And you've clearly learned very fast about what works there. So this is something that I think a lot of founders and leaders struggle with. What tips do you have for founders and managers that are finding it difficult to manage young talent effectively? Because it's something we all have to get much better at because you know it's a big part of the workforce and um, I th- i'm sure anyone will really appreciate your advice on that sure so when you think about young talent and i kind of just to make sure that we you know define it right you know young talent is effectively someone who has potential but they haven't yet had the experience of doing that role right so it's someone who has you know you can see that they've got a skill set they've got a potential they have some character attributes you think they have the potential to develop into that person that doesn't necessarily need to be someone who's very young. They could just be doing a career change. They could be, you know, the age is not the point. The point is the experience gap there. And so what really matters when you look at it is potential and attitude. Those are the two things. And actually, the biggest challenge is attitude. Very rarely, I'd say, in, in having managed lots of people and, and seeing a lot of this stuff, very rarely is potential the ceiling. You know, very rarely does someone not achieve what they want to achieve, what you think they can achieve because they lacked the underlying potential. It's normally the attitude, the perspective, what happens when things don't go their way. It's their reaction, their perspective to things that lets them down. And actually, when you dig into that, it's not because, again, it's not because people don't want to achieve their goals. It's not that they have an attitude that is naturally about not trying to win. Is that something's happened in their life that has given them resentment or they're distracted. They could have you know, a family issue, they could have illness, there's other things. And so what you have to do is you have to believe in people. So you have to say to them, look, I am going to believe that your potential is good enough for you to get there from a capability point of view. But where I'm going to really focus is on your attitude. And I think that, that having that open conversation about, okay, there's one around skill acquisition. 
And obviously, if, if someone doesn't put the time in, they're not going to get good at anything. And you know, that's a universal rule. But secondly, on the attitude point, that's where, as a manager, especially working with more inexperienced people, you just have to be aware that they might not know all the things that are going to happen in their life, right? Because you've gone from a very structured education system to suddenly this wide open world, stuff happens, you know, you're house gets broken into, you have a fight with your neighbor, and then suddenly your world becomes dizzy. And then, you know, the range of issues that distract you can range from tiny to huge, but it's not about the objective viewpoint. It's about their own viewpoint, right? And then what do they do about that? Do they blame the world? Do they blame you? Do they blame their circumstances? Or do they think about that as a way to grow and become better and become stronger? And so I think that the biggest tip is to first understand that it's not potential that's the problem. And then to understand that like, if you're really going to see people reach their potential, you've got to really work on their attitude, which again then comes down to leading by example and also about connecting with people deeply. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Ron. I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of uh, founders scribbling some notes there and uh, hopefully taking that advice on board because it, it can make a real difference. We've got to come on and talk about Sourceful, uh, which you founded in 2020. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what Sourceful does and how the idea came about and, and why you decided it was the right time to leave, I guess, the comfort of a, a C-suite role at THD uh, and embrace the, the chaos and madness of startup life? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that THG was at the time and is still growing very fast. So I, there was nothing especially or very or comfortable at all about it at, at any point in time. And, yeah. you know, I like that. <laughs> Fair enough. And ultimately, you know, going back to founding something from scratch at the very early stage was more just the thing that I just couldn't put down. I just kept coming back to it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And ultimately, that's when you have to still make the leap, but make the decision. And it was just an opportunity to work on something with my wife, right? And so that doesn't really happen that often. And so if you get that chance to, to do it, it doesn't work for everyone. But if it, if it does work, it can be magical. And so we decided to, to give that a go. Sourceful is, a, is the partner for brands that want to be more sustainable. So we want to be the, the partner for a brand that is trying to become more sustainable as fast as possible. One, because we don't have time. Everyone is trying to accelerate this. And two, because brands are what we think is the way of actually changing consumer behavior the best. You know, we're going to talk about what things that people can do, but ultimately, they're still limited by the choices they have. And so we're really focused on helping brands. And specifically, we found that majority of the carbon footprint or the emissions are in the supply chain. So we're focused on the supply chain. It's something that people haven't really been speaking about for a long time until recently. But it's all about, you know, a lot of the energy usage happens outside of the brand's headquarters. It happens in the warehouse. It happens in the manufacturer. It could be around the world. And so finding and mapping those things out is, is a key way that we can improve things. And we're also starting with packaging because packaging is just a tangible contributor, right? Consumers are aware of it. You have so many boxes piled up. Most of it's full of air. And it's a big driver of emissions. So it's a good place to connect everyone together. So. Before we continue with today's episode, I was wondering if I could ask you a small favor. We absolutely love sharing our guests' inspiring stories with you. And I can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners. But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40-Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com 
forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to hear from you. And you, you already had this uh, sort of first introduction to the circular economy with Prelove, a previous business you ran, I think, while you were at the, the Heart Group. So can you tell us a bit about that experience and, and how that kind of helped you when you launched Source or how, how that played into uh, you know the, the business? Yeah, so Prelove is an amazing business, amazing website. started before the year 2000, and I met the, the founder of that business. And uh, he ran it as a very small team for uh, 17 years. And it was the first time that I saw a business that was about saving waste. So there was this movement about upcycling. So taking things that were maybe unloved and making it into something new and exciting and different. And so that was very, very different to a consumer-first lifestyle. And the second one was, was free loved, which is a saying that we started driving on the site, which is that people that didn't want to make any money from the stuff that they had, they just wanted to give it away to someone else who would give it a second home. And that, that was the first time I saw people outside of maybe a, a religious or charitable setting doing so much for a community to help each other. And one of the first things I got was uh, a limited edition uh, bottle of port and someone drove all the way to the office to give it to me. And it was a it was like a newspaper edition bottle and I had it and had it in my office for, for 10 years. Probably wouldn't drink it, but I kept it there as a reminder of, of community and the importance of that. And it was very early on in my career, probably in the first two years. Uh, I was 23 you know, and that business really stuck with me. And so it took me a long time to realize that, you know, that there is a business model in helping people to do better. And um, I've heard you say before that when, when you found Sourceful, you were convinced you'd never receive any media coverage for building a business around something that wasn't particularly sexy, supply chain. But obviously COVID has completely changed that. So I'd love to hear a bit more about sort of how, how you found building Sourceful during COVID firstly, a big challenge for any founder, and what it felt like to suddenly see supply chain issues making the headlines. Yeah, so there were, you know, there's two things we care about, supply chain and sustainability. And we saw both of those things in the news. But they were at the news at the same time, but completely different reasons. Right? So supply chain was in the news because COVID had disrupted it. And so people were getting their parcels late and the price of things was going up. So it was all about cost and delays and all of this chaos. And sustainability was in the news because governments were meeting and there was activism happening and things were changing. So they, these two things were happening, but they were never connected. It was never supply chain and sustainability. It was just these two big things are happening in our world. And so COVID was accelerating this uh, shift in people's working habits and people evaluating what they wanted to do. And so it was really fascinating to see that people had these two things front of mind, but did connect them. So coming out of this, I still think we're very early in the journey of, of realizing that to achieve sustainability, we have to think about the way things are made, how things are transported, and what people do with them after they use them. So I still think we're really early. But in terms of hiring and building the business, it was much easier to talk about these things than before. Because if you if you had said five years ago, we're going to build something into sustainability, people would say, oh, you know, no one really will buy stuff. That doesn't really matter. And five years ago, if you talked about supply chain, they would be talking about e-commerce distribution or digital marketing. You wouldn't be talking about those things. And so, yeah, they're now things that people care about, but we still think we're one of the first to connect the dots and make that a priority for a business. 
and I, I, I absolutely love Saul's mission. I think it's it's great to see more businesses working towards becoming more sustainable. Uh, and I know you're dry, sort of you're right at the forefront of that and working with some great partners. But there's also so much more that can be done. I think it's, you know, it, it, it kind of goes without saying. So from your experience, what are some of the, the quick wins that businesses should focus on uh, to become more sustainable? And what are some of the common mistakes that you're seeing businesses make time and time again? Yeah, I think there are very few quick wins. That is the issue. Yeah, I think the issue has been in this space that there have been lots of shortcuts that don't really work. And because they have worked for some time, people don't really look deeper. But ultimately, if you think about really what sustainability is, it's about being able to survive over the long time, right? And so it's about consistency. And that comes from measurement and planning. It comes from data. It comes from technology. And actually... To, to think about this properly, it also comes down to investment. So hiring your first sustainability person or having someone in your team start to, to read up on this, becoming educated about the issues. The space is becoming much better, much clearer very quickly. But unless you have focus in your business on it, you'll miss out on the things that are changing. And I'd, I'd say that's probably the only quick win is to start getting educated in the space. No, fair enough. No, thank you. I think, yeah, well, you, you've obviously referenced packaging, which is a big part of, of what you're doing. But uh, I think a lot of people associate sustainable packaging with like plain gray brown boxes. But but it's I guess that's not always the case. So do you have examples of brands that have done this really well? And any advice for any, I guess, product brands that are looking to reassess their packaging? Yeah, so to, to really understand the carbon footprint or say what is sustainable packaging, you have to understand LCA. So LCA is life cycle assessment. And what it means is you've got to understand all of the things that happens to this box on the way to it being made and on the way to it being disposed of and what happens after that. If you only focus on one small thing, you miss the bigger picture. And actually, when you think about it, ink is part of the impact. So having a beautiful full color box, there is an impact, of course, because you're using ink drops that have to be transported, have to be put on the box. And what does that do to the recyclability? But it's not the biggest impact. Ink is actually you know, a relatively small part of the actual makeup of the product. And so when you do the analysis, you find the biggest impact for, for packaging is materials and transport. The actual making of a box, to so take a, a sheet of paper and turn it into a box, is tiny. It's just the electricity cost of, of folding it and cutting it and so on. The biggest part is the materials and the transport. But understanding transport is key because you could get something made locally. So you can have a supplier that, that makes the product in the UK, but they had to get their materials transported from Europe or America. So to actually really understand the picture, you do have to trace all of these things back. Where do they come from? Where do they get made? What happens afterwards? You know, what happens in the recycling journey? And so brands that have done this really well, I think I think about Timo Augusto, of course. And, uh, you know, his startup is completely focused on uh, tackling food waste in the way that how do you reduce the amount of food that gets bought and then not consumed, right? So their fundamental mission in making cooking fun again and, and easy to work with is also about driving that reduction in waste. And then obviously on the packaging, they have a big obligation because they're handling the supply chain of food as well as the actual delivery of the box, what they can do about it. And it's very hard to be perfect. But I think the biggest thing is to measure it. 
to measure it, to be open about what you're doing and to work consistently on it. Sometimes the things that you want materials-wise are not there. So we'd, we'd love to have obviously a box that would arrive and then immediately just convert it back to a tree, right? You just love that. But these things don't happen. You'd love to have a plastic material that you could just flush down the sink. But these things are coming and on the way, but they're not always quite there yet. The most important thing is that you actually know what's happening in your supply chain. How many brands don't even know what's happening around the world in the product before it comes to them? They don't see it. And so it used to be out of sight, out of mind. But but now it's going to be out of sight. That's your problem, right? And so I think that change is going to drive a lot of things and we, we want to be part of that solution. We've talked a lot about what businesses can do, but you know, I guess... Business is one part of the problem, but there's, there's a lot of people on the earth um, and we've all got our, our own part to play individually. So what would you say are some things that anyone listening to this that's inspired by what you're saying wants to be better, wants to live a more sustainable life? What, what things would you suggest? And I'd also love to know a bit about where this kind of for you personally, you know, comes into play. Like what was it about this, you know, sustainability that, that has made you so passionate about it? Yeah. So I think from an individual point of view, there are lots of people that can give better advice than me, you know, whether it's food choices. So looking at your diet and understanding that, whether it's your travel choices and understanding that or, you know, your your consumer habits. Ultimately, my advice is always to be the biggest change is going to come in businesses. So a lot of people work a lot and they're advocates in their own businesses. And so I think, you know, whether you're the CEO or you're a part of a team or you're, you know, in sustainability or not, being an advocate in your business to to help think through what does that business, uh, you know, what that business should look like from a waste and sustainability point of view and to try and get people to see that that's what a good business looks like. A well-run business is sustainable and can last for a long time. I think that would be my advice. But of course, there's lots of things individuals can do. I just think there are definitely lots of uh, influencers who can, who can tell you that much better than me. I think from a personal point of view, why am I am passionate about it is that I think that there's a, a large amount of people who want better choices. I want better choices, right? You know, when, when you buy stuff online, we go for the most convenient option because we don't have time. But if we could go for the most convenient option that was also sustainable, of course we would. That's what all the research says and that's what everyone is saying. And I think I can relate to that as well. And I tried to find brands that would be more sustainable and I couldn't find enough of them. And so that's why I'm passionate about trying to build the infrastructure and be the partner for these brands to do that. And so, yeah, it's a mission that you know, I can see myself doing for the rest of my life. Brilliant. Thanks so much. for that's, that's, that's great to hear. We've got to talk about culture because this is obviously something very pertinent to what we do as a business. And I know it's something you're very passionate about. So I'd love to talk about your team. You know, it's, it's grown rapidly over the last year. You've hired over 50 people. They're all shareholders in the business. So feel clearly feel very invested in the mission. How have you found the hiring experience, you know, in the early days? I guess it's a different proposition perhaps to when you're at THG. And what are some of the core characteristics you look for in talent when you're hiring? Yeah, I think whether it's, you know, a, a so-called senior hire for the exec team, or it's um, a first hire, maybe their first job out of university, maybe their first job, if they didn't go to university, it doesn't matter. There's one key thing that I'm looking for, and, you know, this is the secret. So if anyone's listening and wants to get a job, you know, just listen to this. It's being able to look at what's happened in their life and to take the positives out of that journey. 
you know, what I mean by that is, especially in painful situations, to find the lessons that actually apply to them, but also have an optimistic attitude. You know, that's much easier said than done, right? It's, it's like something bad happened and, you know, you look, up, you look at it and rather than blaming other people, you think, what could I do better? But you also come out of that, out of that experience and think, I can do better and I have a positive outlook on, on the world. I think, you know, those two things is for me the biggest measure of success over the long term. And so I want to see that in all of the team members that, that we have. Love it. Yeah, I think that just being being reflective and self aware is it's sometimes it's it's you know we've all got egos and uh, it's not always easy sometimes to to, to look back at mistakes and uh, but actually I think you can put a lot of positive spins on you know things that have gone wrong and and what you've learned from it because you know that's, it's just going to happen. I think particularly in startups, you know, and you want someone when you're in the trenches and things go wrong that isn't isn't just going to give up. You want someone that's going to actually learn from it and and you know and, and hopefully do it the next time and uh, and be a positive influence so uh, and i know you've got that in your business and it's great to see we've talked about culture a bit we, you know you've already given us a, a great indication to how you lead by example uh, and the sorts of things you look for how would you describe the culture of sourceful and you know i guess probably any anyone that's listening why should listeners apply to to join the rocket ship what is it about sourceful that sets it apart from everyone else yeah i think there's we have many cultural attributes. We have five values that we talk about. But I think just if I could distill it down to one thing, it would be a culture centered around learning and helping each other be better. So, and that comes down to learning. And the reason why that's important is that the world is continuing to shift and behavior is changing rapidly. So you have to be adaptable and continue learning or the things that you learned before will no longer help you to get to where you need to get to, right? And so we're building an environment for people who didn't stop learning at school. And they don't just want to earn money and just achieve results, but they also want to keep improving and being curious about the world. I think that's really important because the problems that we're going to face in the future aren't even the ones that we're facing now, right? So if you're not going to keep learning and being curious, then that skill set will grow stale very quickly. And then finally, we're optimistic. So so much of business is cynical and exploitative and trying to find that margin advantage and trying to find an edge. And so much of the world right now is very divisive, where it's political or countries or everything. But as a B2B business, we're partnership driven, right? We need to work really well with our clients, work really well with our suppliers and with our other partners. And so joining a business that is focused about helping other people win, I think is it can be refreshing. And I think a business that is about learning for the right people who don't think that they know it all or don't think that they have all the answers is great. It's not for everyone. And it's difficult to continue to come in every day and think, I'm going to learn stuff I didn't know. And that's not always easy. It's not always easy to learn every day. But for the right people, it's great. I'm sure there's going to be some people who listen to this that fire off their CVs after hearing that. Um, It's it's a great culture. And and I also love your point about optimism. Uh, I'm a naturally glass half full type of guy. And I, I love that about what you're building so thank you we are sad at the end wing i could talk to you for ages but we're gonna we're gonna wrap up with some final questions so in one sentence what do you think the future holds for sourceful yeah being the partner for the best brands in the world that's it simple brilliant and at the end of your career what do you want to be remembered for i think helping thousands of people to achieve their dreams that that for me is it's helping people to see their potential all the way through. 
sometimes directly, but mostly indirectly, right? I won't be able to talk to as many people anymore. But if I can work on helping people that can help people and build that cascade effect, and I think uh, that's a life and a career well well lived. Sounds like a, a great legacy to, to, to aim for. And obviously, we're on the 40-minute mentor. So do you have a mentor? And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would that be and why? Yeah, I mean, I try and find inspiration in many places, books, podcasts, you know, videos, you know, your podcast, for example. But I'm really fortunate that I have a great relationship with my dad. So I actually talk to him about life quite often. And so I know I'm really privileged to have someone that close that I can talk to about anything all the time. If I could have uh, a mentor, it would be Kobe Bryant, I think. Uh, he was the, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But he also did it over a long period of time, consistently, using both his brain, his heart, and his body. And I think that that is, a, you know, for the right type of person, that model is very inspirational, just to spend time with, with uh, such a, a leader and outspoken individual in the basketball game. I think uh, I take a lot of inspiration from that. What a great answer. Yeah, thank you. And finally, what's your number one final piece of advice, uh, whether it's career or life advice, that you'd like to leave our listeners with? If you want to change someone's behavior, you have to model that for them first. I think uh, lead by example is the only leadership hack that works most of the time. Uh, you know, if it's with career, if it's with your partner, if it's with family, if any, anything that you want to see change, you've got to be the first one to do it. So be brave and lead by example. That's an awesome place to leave it. Thank you so much, Wing. Really enjoyed hearing about your career and uh, some fantastic mentorship there that I know will inspire our listeners. We will wish you all the very best for the rest of 2022 and beyond. Um, I think it's going to be a very exciting year. So uh, thanks again for coming on 40 Minute Mental. No worries. Thanks a lot. Bye. What a fantastic mentorship from a truly amazing leader. I loved my chat with Wing and I really hope you found it equally helpful and inspiring. It was great to hear about Sourceful's mission and journey so far and also the way Wing approaches leadership. I really like his emphasis on the importance of investing time in your people, developing talent and focusing on their attitude over experience. The best founders that we work with are the ones who really invest in their teams and build great cultures like Sourceful. It's those companies that are much more likely to attract and retain their best talent. And given how competitive the market is right now, it's an absolute no-brainer for CEOs and founders to prioritize this. And in my humble opinion, Wing is one of the best in the startup ecosystem at doing this. So if you enjoyed this episode, please check out Sourceful and don't forget to subscribe to 40 Minute Mentor so you're the first one to find out about next week's episode when we catch up with two co-founders who are building one of the most exciting fintechs around, which has been described by some as the Duolingo for finance. They just raised a fantastic seed round and are one to watch, but more on that next week. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you soon. This podcast is brought to you by JBM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high growth startups and scale-ups. We also have a fast and flexible talent solution called SOS, where founders and VCs tap into an exclusive pool of scale-up operators to help them de-risk senior hiring, plug urgent leadership gaps on an interim or fractional basis, or for high impact projects. Since launching just over 12 months ago, 
SOS has placed 50 leaders into some of the fastest growing firms, and the solution is in demand more than ever before. If you're a founder or VC that needs top talent quickly, a scale-up operator interested in high-impact roles, or a talent professional that wants to work at JBM, please reach out today at info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you.